theyeshiva.net. The 24th chapter of Sefer Bereshis, Genesis chapter 24, tells the story of how Avram Avinu sent his servant to find a wife for his son Yitzchak. Who the servant is, is interesting because the text doesn't identify the servant. Not once throughout the story, which lasts for close to 70 psukim, 67 psukim. It's the longest, one of the longest portions in the Torah. We don't have the name of the servant. But the commentators identify him as Eliezer. So when the story is usually told, we say Avram sent Eliezer to find a wife for his son. But the actual verse of the text, the text never identifies him as Eliezer. And when he has to introduce himself, he introduces himself characteristically with three words by saying, Eved Avraham Anoichi. I am a servant of Avraham. He goes to the city of Charan. He travels from the land of Canaan, later to become the land of Eretz Yisrael, the land of the Jewish people. And he goes to Charon. Charon is actually a name of a city that still exists. Southern Turkey has a city called Haran. H-A-R-R-A-N. And according to most, it's exactly the same city of ancient Haran because nearby they did excavations of what seems to be ancient Haran. So this is at the southern point of Turkey. It's on the border of Syria and Iraq. So the servant of Avram travels all the way to Haran. That's where Avram's family remained while he and Sorrow moved on to the land of Canaan. But Haran was the place where his family once upon a time moved many years ago. And when the servant Eliezer arrives at the town's well, he proposes the famous test. What's the test? A woman a young woman who comes to draw water from the well and offers some of her water to the traveler and in addition will give water also to his camels. So this, the servant says, I will know that this is the woman chosen by Hashem for my master's son, for Avram Avinu's son, for Yitzchak. Now before we go further, further was this test permitted? We know that in halacha, and Jewish law, there's a prohibition in Chumash and Sefer Dvarim Deuteronomy called loisen nachashu, against making omens. It's seen as a form of magic or uh, superstition, paganism. The classic example that the commentators give would be, a deer ran in front of me today, and therefore it's a bad omen, I'm not leaving the house today. I picked up my piece of bread to eat. It fell out of my hand. It's a bad omen. I'm not leaving the house today. The question they ask is, was this omen, was this test, not dangerously close to pagan practice? Some sign, some omen I make, and that's how I decide if it's a good, uh, if it's a good match for, uh, for Yitzchak. So interestingly, some of the commentators believe it was the wrong thing to do. Eliezer erred, he was not supposed to do that. But many of the commentators differ. This is a very famous discussion 
and the commentators in Gemara and Shraktate Chulin, page 95, and the Rambam and the laws of Avaydah Zorah and the Ravid, it's a very interesting and complex discussion among halachic authorities. Two of the great authorities, the Ran, Rabbeinu Nisim, and the Maharal of Prague, in his commentary, Gurari, they explain that Eliezer's conduct was completely legitimate because what he was looking for was not an omen. He was not making some superstitious omen. If this happens, this is the girl Yitzchak should marry. Rather, he was actually trying to identify the character of this young woman. The test was not one of superstition. It was one of logic. It would be like somebody saying, it's cloudy today. It's probably going to rain. I should take an umbrella. Or I'm not going to walk out of the house because I don't want to get wet. That's not nichush. That's not a superstitious uh, omen connected with magic. It's basically logic. If it's raining outside, you may not want to get wet. You may want to put on a coat. You may want to take an umbrella. Or the best idea is you may want to stay home. So according to most of these commentators, Eliezer's test was what we might call today a psychological test. It was to determine the personality type of the girl he was searching for. And therefore, a girl who would offer him water and his camel's water, this girl would pass the personality test of the type of young woman Eliezer was looking for as a proper soulmate, as a proper spouse for his master's son, for Isaac, for Yitzchak. In other words, it would be obvious that she's kind, she's generous, she's giving. The question you have to ask yourself is, if that's the case, is that really enough? Can a single test like this be sufficient grounds on which to base such a faithful decision as to the choice of marriage, a marriage partner for Yitzchak? Is this really enough to establish marital harmony? I mean, there are many kind people out there and there are many, many kind women out there, but it doesn't mean that all of them Suit, Yitzchak, I mean, think of your own child. You want a very kind uh, woman for your wonderful son. But just hearing that somebody is kind, there is a lot of kind girls. Is that really enough, that one single question? And with that, Eliezer can determine this is the proper soulmate for Yitzchak. And we have to recall something else. He was on a mission to choose a woman who wouldn't only marry Yitzchak and they would just go live somewhere happily ever after as an individual couple. But she would be the woman who, like Sarah before her, would be the trailblazer, together with her husband, of a new nation. They would carve out a new path, like Avram and Sarah before them, a new path in the jungle of history. She and her husband Yitzchak would need to continue what they call the Abrahamic revolution or the monotheistic revolution, which Avram Avinu began, embracing a life of moral dedication to humanity and to the creator of the world, to Hashem, does this simple test of giving water to a stranger and to the camel of a stranger determine that this girl is qualified to play such a powerful, vital, and indispensable role in history as a second matriarch of the Jewish people. But the truth is, as one delves into the story, one discovers that Eliezer's character test 
was not as simple as it seems. It was extremely intricate and profoundly subtle. And this is another classic example where when you read a story superficially, it just looks like a very simple story. I'm looking for a girl who's nice, what they call today a balas chesed, and she has good midos, and she'll give me water, and that's it. And she gives him water and he's off. He knows this is the right shidduch. And that's, that's the story. But if you go in a little bit to the details and you study it with a little more depth, you see that there are more profound layers to the story. And therefore, Eliezer's calculations were far more subtle than one would imagine initially, superficially. On a, what one would imagine with a superficial reading of the story. Make yourself comfortable. Parenthetically, and we spoke about this once, but I just want to address it a little bit from a different angle. Some of the commentators explain that Eliezer himself was ambivalent about this mission. Because Avram Avinu sends him to a city called Haran, the place where he comes from, his native, he wasn't born there, he came from ur but later on they moved, the whole family moved to Haran. That included his parents and his siblings. So his family was there and the extended family. And go find a woman. But how is he supposed to find a woman in Haran? Like, you know, uh, so I was remember I was once in Australia and somebody came over to me and said, you're from New York. I said, yeah, you probably know my cousin. I said, absolutely, no question that I know your cousin. Right? <laughs> from the three and a half million Jews in New York, I certainly know... I certainly know your cousin. Go to Haran and find a wife. What? Where? When? What am I supposed to stand in the street and say you? So Eliezer had no choice. He went to the well because the well was the place where everybody came to. Like the well was the, you know, that was the gathering place because everybody needed water. There's no sinks in the house. And you come to the well. Everybody needs water for, for, for bathing, for washing, for cleaning, and of course, for drinking, for quenching your thirst of the people and of the livestock, of the animals. So he goes to the well. What am I going to do at the well? What am I going to see? I mean, you could see different characters. You could see how different people interact. So Eliezer makes this sign for himself. I'm actually going to search for a particular type of girl. This was his way of trying to fulfill the mission which his master, Avramavinu, entrusted him with. But there was an ambivalence there. And where is the ambivalence noted? It's noted in a very interesting way and place. And that is, I mentioned to you maybe a few times, that there is a musical note in Chumash that is very rare. It only exists four times. It's called the Shalshelas. It exists once in Vayera, Light procrastinated, once this week, Chayesara, once in Vayeshev, Yosef refused Paitifra's wife, and once later in Sav, when Moshe Rabbeinu Vayishchot, he slaughters the final animal at the end of the seven days of inauguration of the Mishkan, when he's going to give over the mantle to his brother Aaron. One of the Shalshelasin is in Chayis Saran, the word Vayoymar. When Eliezer is standing at the well, he speaks to God and he says, please help me find the right soulmate for Yitzchak. And he presents the plan, the sign of the girl who's going to offer water to him and to his camels. On that Vayoymar, it's Vayoymar, 
which is very strange musical mode for the word. The word Vayoymer you have frequently in Chumash. And he said, but here it's not just he said, and he said, and it was one of the great commentators, Rabbi Yosef Ibn Kaspi, who notes that the Shalshalas is basically the note of ambivalence. It even looks like a zigzag. A shalshalas looks like you go this way and then you go this way. It's uncertainty. You know, in Hebrew, there's no word for ambivalence. There's no word in Hebrew for ambivalence. Anybody knows Hebrew here? No word. The closest you'll get is, Melachim Aleph Perikid Zion, Anovi tells the Jews, Admosai Atempoischim, Alshtehaseifim, or as we say in Yiddish, Vilangvas Tatansen of Tzvechasenos. Or as we say in English, how long are you going to sit on the fence? There's no word for ambivalence. But there is a musical note for ambivalence. There is a song for ambivalence. It's called the Shalshalas. You can hear. Ah, it's the scratch CD. Or when some of us grew up, the scratched record. And the song is trying to continue, but it can't. It's stuck. I'm stuck. I'm ambivalent. I'm not sure. I'm sitting on the fence. Um, okay. No. no. Uh, uh, literally three times. But why was Eliezer ambivalent? What was he ambivalent about? What 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 is the issue? The issue may be, this is what some want to say, the issue may be he was worried that he's doing the wrong thing. He is practicing a practice that is inconsistent with what would be a halacha in Judaism in the future called nichosh, living by superstitions, living by magic, living by omens. This is what, this is what he was afraid of. Was this nichosh? Ibn Kaspi himself says he was ambivalent about something else. Can one simple test determine who the right girl is? Can that happen? Yitzchak is not coming to visit her. She's going to be brought to Yitzchak. Can this one test determine that this is the right one? That's a very serious question. Like, what am I doing? Let's say she gives me water. That's enough? The Medrash, quoted in Rashi, offers a third possible source of ambivalence, which you may know, Eliezer had his own daughter, and he was really hoping that his daughter would marry Yitzchak. And therefore... He was ambivalent about the entire mission. There was a part of him that really didn't want it to succeed because he wanted his daughter to marry Yitzchak. But Avram felt that would not be the right match for Yitzchak. What do we see from all of this? That there is a challenge here. How to define the right girl for Yitzchak? And can this one single test of kindness, Assuming, as the Ran and the Maral say, it's not an omen, it's not magic, it's not superstition. It's simply a very logical way of determining the qualities, the midas, the disposition, the characteristics of this young woman. Will this really suffice to determine that she is the proper soulmate for uh, for Yitzchak? So I want to now go back to the story and read it with more subtlety. Read it more intricately and see what we can glean from this. And some of the ideas, many of the ideas I will be conveying are based on the commentary of the Malbim and also a great essay by Nechama Leibowitz on Parshas Chayesara. How is the story described in the Chumash? 
As I said, it's Genesis chapter 24. The servant, his name is never mentioned, as I said. The servant takes ten camels from the camels of his master. Now, as I tell the story, I want you, I want to ask of you to tune in to something specific. You see, we have to understand that unlike classical novels, Lahavdil, the Torah does not bother to describe details and nuances of daily life. Very rare that you're going to have these types of nuances. In other novels, this is the key of writing a capturing novel. You will focus on these types of details and nuances. It it draws the reader in. It helps you feel, it helps make you feel that you're part of the story. You're experiencing the story. It's not just detached facts. What makes a good, what a great writer brings the story to life, just like a great artist brings the art, the picture to life. But in the Torah, you don't have that. Very rarely are you going to have details of daily life. It emits descriptions of the surroundings, the climate, the physical appearances, the furniture, the utensils, and the other amenities of daily living. Let's give a striking example. We know nothing about what Avram Avinu, Yaakov Avinu, Moshe Rabbeinu looked like. We have, and the Chumash, we have absolutely, we have no hint. You can imagine in your mind, based on pictures that they drew on some coloring book, but we have no real authority in the text. What did Adam look like? What did Chava look like? The Torah would all, will only give details of a story under one condition. If it's directly relevant to the theme. For example, it says that Avram told Sarah, you're beautiful. It speaks about Yosef's handsomeness. It speaks about Avshalom's long hair. But those details of Avshalom's long hair or Yosef's striking beauty and handsome is relevant to the theme of the story. Because a major part of Yosef's story will revolve his beauty. And Avshalom will ultimately get caught in his hair. So that's why when there is a detail, you have to ask yourself, this is not just for entertainment reasons because most of the details are gone. What is it really teaching you? One of the stories in which we find a notable exception of this rule is the story of Eliezer's journey to go find a soulmate for Yitzchak. It is so perplexing that, as I said, it's the longest portion in the whole Chumash. 67 verses. Some of the most vital halachas of Jewish life are in one verse. Not to work on Shabbos which is a staple of Jewish life for thousands of years, you have very few verses. But the story of exactly how this man went to search for a girl, not even the marriage, the marriage is one verse. How he went to search for a girl, 67 psukim. Why? Because suddenly the Torah leaves, breaks all of its rules, it defies all of its structures, and wants to describe to us what might seem as details and nuances of daily life that are certainly interesting for the read, but would seem perplexing in terms of the genre 
and the nature of how the Torah, the Tanakh, and especially the Chumash, was written. So I'm now going to read the story, and I want you to notice this interesting point about this particular story. So it starts over, the servant takes ten camels from the camels of his master, all of the all of the possessions, culto of all of the goodness, the abundance of his master with him, and he travels to a place called Aram Naharayim, to a city called Nochar. And what happens now? He makes the camels kneel outside of the city, beside the well of water, when in the evening, during the time when all the girls will come out to draw the water. So the, the, the camels come, they're all kneeling near the well. Where is the well? The well is outside of the town. It's not inside, it's outside. And that's when all the girls are coming to get the water. That's when he speaks to Hashem and he says, please do kindness with my master Avram Avinu. I'm standing here at the water fountain. The daughters of the people living in the city are coming out to draw water. If there's going to be a young woman whom I will say to her, lower your pitcher and let me drink from your water. And she offers me, she says, yes, and even your camels I will give water to. Please let me know that this is the right girl for Yitzchak. Before he even finishes the conversation, Rivka, who was the son of Psuel, who is, I'm sorry, Rivka, who is the daughter of Psuel, who is the son of Milka, the wife of Nachar, who's a brother of Avram Avinu, is approaching the well. V'chada al shikma. Her pitcher is on her shoulder. And then the Torah interrupts the story and says, I want you to know about this girl. Hanara Toivasmara. She's beautiful. She has a beautiful appearance. Ishla Yida. No man had been intimate with her. Vatered Ha'aina. She went down into the well, into the fountain, into the spring. She filled her pitcher, and she ascended from the well. She comes back up. The servant of Avram runs towards her, and he says, Please, let me sip a little water from your pitcher. She says, Drink. My lord, drink my master, vatamaher, hastenly, with, with swiftness, vatayrit kadal yada, she lowers her pitcher on her hand. What does it mean she lowers it on her hand? Because we learned before she went with the pitcher on her shoulder. That's how she went to the well. Apparently when she filled the pitcher, she certainly put it on her shoulder because it's heavy and it's much easier to carry it on the shoulder. So she's not holding it, she's carrying it on her shoulder. Now he asks her for water, so what does she do? She lowers the pitcher into her hand and she gives him to drink. She finishes giving him to drink. He is completely... His thirst is completely quenched. Now she says, I'm also going to draw water for your camels until they will finish drinking. What happens now? A second time. She's doing the swift. She empties the pitcher into the trough. The trough was the, what is it called, the cistern, the pit, the cavity where animals drink from. So she filled up a pitcher of water. She let Eliezer drink from it as she lowered it from her shoulder. There's still water in the pitcher. I mean, he drank a lot, but he didn't drink the whole pitcher. So what does she do? She empties the pitcher into the trough. 
She runs back to the well to draw more water. And she draws enough water to irrigate, to hydrate, to quench the thirst of all of his camels. And this man, the servant, is mishtoi. Mishtoi is, he's astonished. He's astounded. He's overwhelmed. He's flabbergasted. He's mesmerized. Standing there silently, trying to figure out, indeed, did God really make me succeed? As all the camels, as the camels finish drinking, finish drinking, what happens? The man takes a golden nose ring, weighing a half a shekel. He takes two bracelets for her hands, weighing each one ten gold shekel. And he gives it to this young woman, who is Rivka. And the continuation of the story is, of course, she invites him to stay in their home with all of the people that came and all of the camels. She says she has food for the animals and food for the people. And, of course, they'll have drinks as well. And... He stays there overnight. The next day he negotiates the, the shidduch, the match with Psuel, with her father, initially her mother, and I mean with Psuel and her, his, his Psuel's son, her brother Lavan. I stand corrected. And ultimately Rivka agrees and they go back home where Yitzchak sees her and they marry each other and Yitzchak and Rivka become husband and wife. That's the continuation of the story. If you listened well to these verses, and you can study it afterwards inside, and you'll see how dramatic and intense this exception is, there are so many details here that don't even seem so consequential. Just remember, this is all how he found a wife for Yitzchak. This is all about his journey. The marriage is in one verse. Doesn't even discuss what the marriage looked like. They became, they were married. But all of the journey, all everything involved in the journey is very, very nuanced. A few example of these details that are very rare, rarely described in Chumash. Number one, the Torah notifies us that Avram's servant traveled by camel. Who cares how he traveled? We have to know he traveled by camel. Okay. But not only that, we're told that he took 10 camels with him on the journey. Is that really relevant? He took 10 camels with him on the journey. The Torah mentions twice that the well was not right near the trough from where the camels drank. It was close enough. It was in walking distance. But it wasn't right near the That's why it says... Vataratz, Rivka was running from the trough to the well, from the well back to the trough. They're near each other, you don't run from one to the other. So that means there is distance between the well, where you're getting the water from, and the trough where the camels are drinking from. The Torah makes sure to mention that Rivka drew water from the well, and that the well was something that required, was in a place that required you to go down. In other words, to get water from the well, you didn't just bend down. You had to descend and then ascend. That's what the Torah mentions. If that's not enough, 
the Torah states three times, three times, that all of the camels of Avram's servants, of Avram's servant, drank to their full satisfaction. It doesn't say it once. It says it three times. When Rivka meets him, she says, I'm going to give you your camels, ad im kilulishtois. Until they're finished drinking. I'll give your camels. No, until they're finished drinking. Then it says, Vatishav lechol gmalov. Indeed, she drew water for all the camels to drink to their full satisfaction. And the third time, When the camels finish drinking. Now you might say, well, all this is just part of the story. Like, yeah, the well you went down and she ran and there were camels and there were ten camels. That's how you write a story. That's not how you write a story in Chumash. You could read through the stories unless the details are essential to the theme of the story. And when we put all these details together, we get a full picture. I'm going to ask you to join me for a moment at this scene. Avram's servant, Eliezer, is standing at a well outside of the town. It's a time when you can't open the sink in your kitchen and get water. People walked every single day to the town's well to obtain water. You can still see this scene in cities and towns of underdeveloped countries. I remember a few years ago I was in Belarus and I was in Ukraine, certain parts of it, and you could still see, not the bigger cities, but little hick towns, Derfalach, and you could still see the scene of people literally coming to the well with their chickens around them, drawing water. So Eliezer is waiting for the young women to arrive to draw water from the well. They're going to bring back the water to their homes, of course, for drinking. The people have to drink, the children have to drink, the adults, the animals have to drink. They need a bathe, they need a wash, and whatever else they need water for. Young Rivka arrives. She goes down into the well, she fills a pitcher, she comes up, She puts it on her shoulder and she begins the trek back home with this pitcher of water. We know that this is nighttime. Le'es Erev, it's dawn, it's before night, it's nighttime. Because that's when they would come get the water. They would have water for the night and have water for the next day until they would come back again the next evening to get the water. Eliezer approaches her and says, can I sip some water from your pitcher? Okay. Now I'm just imagining that I'm the guy, I'm the person. Forgive me for a moment. Whoopsie. Oh, see that? Okay. <laughs> we don't believe in almonds, but it's interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> talk about the water. Yes. <laughs> Why not use the props? It's just a little simpler these days. Okay. So I have this picture, or you have this picture, or this little girl, according to Rashi, she was three, according to the Chiskuni, she was 14, but she's a young, a young, a young woman, anyway, you uh, spin the story. It says she's a Nara, she's a young lady. And, uh, so if you were carrying this picture, or your little daughter was carrying this picture, I was carrying this picture, and he comes and says, can I have, can I have a little water? I'm thirsty. What would I tell this fellow? I might have said to him, here, there's a well. And it's mamish, it, it's a wonderful well, right? It, it's like, it's not like you can get in this well much more water actually than you're going to get from me. <laughs> there's a well. 
everybody comes to take water. Baruch Hashem, we have a wonderful well. It's a living spring. It's producing water constantly. It's flowing constantly. You got to go down. There's actually a nice ramp, if you didn't see. Credit to uh, whichever family. and uh, Or nice steps, you can go down and get the water. Or, maybe, I would tell him, you know, I already have this picture on my shoulder. And, you know, presumably, it wasn't a tiny little... Uh, it wasn't a tiny little bottle. She's taking it home. If she's taking it home, it means she's bringing water for her family. And we know she has a family. And they have animals also. So we can presume that it's a pretty large picture, maybe even a gigantic picture, so she can irrigate the entire family, the animals, and whatever is needed for the next day. It's also filled with water. So I can assume it's pretty heavy. It's not so easy to take it down. And, you know, I'm already on my way home. I have an idea. There's other girls coming. They didn't fill their picture yet, right? Maybe you ask, one of them will just be much easier for them. Their picture is empty. You can do it. Or, or, if I'm in a much better mood, <laughs> I could say, my dear friend, no problem. My pleasure. Pajalista, leteyavon, somapetit. Take down the picture from my shoulder and offer yourself a drink. Here, take it down. All this would make sense. What did Rivka actually do? So the Torah says, when he asks for a drink, she says to him, drink, my master. And she hastened and lowered her pitcher to her hand and she gave him to drink. She lowers the pitcher, she gives him to drink. If that's not enough, the story then continues. She finished giving him to drink. And she said, I will also draw for your camels until they will have finished drinking. Kilu lishtois. Kilu means till they're done, till they're finished. She is so nice. She's so kind. She wants to irrigate his camels too. But at least now, what would I do? Okay, the guy asked me for a drink. I lower the pitcher. Here's a drink. He has a bunch of camels. I say, you know what? Here, you have a bunch of camels. I want them also to have a drink. Here, my dear friend. Take my pitcher, go down to the well, fetch water, fill up the trough, which in Chumash is called a shaykes, the container from where the animals eat or drink, it's called a shaykes, a trough, and give your camels to drink as much as you would like and they would like. Now let's remember, Eliezer didn't come alone. Eliezer came with other men. Because Rivka told them, I have place for you in the house and also for all of your men. How many men did he come with? Doesn't say clearly, but it says he came with 10 camels. So, perhaps, it was 10 men, <laughs> or 9 men, driving on the other, use, uh, riding on the other camels together with Eliezer. Or, however, we don't have a clear number. Some commentators discuss different numbers, but there were men with him, plus there were 10 camels. So she could have said, you know, you got 9 guys here, right? Between the 9 of you, <laughs> you could take the picture. Fill up the water, fill it up with water, put it in the trough, and have everybody, all the camels, enjoy drinking. Enjoy the water. Instead, she says, I will also draw for your camels until they finish drinking. And to quote the words of Rivka, in the original, she says, Gamlig malecha esh of, 
for your camels, I will also draw adasher imkilu lishtois until they are done drinking. What happens next? What happens next is she hastens, she empties the pitcher into the trough, she runs again to the well to draw water, and she draws water from the well, placing it in the trough for all the camels. This means, after she gave the servant to drink, there was still water in the pitcher. That's why it says, she rushed and she emptied it into the trough. So she runs over to the trough, she empties the remainder of the water in the pitcher that Eliezer did not drink, but that would not suffice for ten camels. That's a little water left in the pitcher. So she runs back to the well to refill the pitcher, emptying it into the trough for the camels. Then she has to return to the well to fill the pitcher again and go back to the trough to fill it for the camels. And as the Torah says, she's running from here to there because there is a distance until she draws for all the camels. And here, there's no way of understanding the story if we don't know the biology of camels. Rear to the camel, exceptional among all other mammals. I think literally all other mammals. God has given the camel a very strange hump. You're all familiar with the camel's hump. It's a, there's a reason. Those bulges, that huge hump of the camel, is filled with fat. It's a place where the camel stores fat. It's literally like a, a, a spear tank of gasoline in your car's trunk if you're prone to end up on the highway without gas for whatever reason. And you have in your trunk a spear tank of gasoline. When food and water for the camel become scarce, the camel extracts energy from the mound of fat, from the hump. The longer a camel goes without eating or drinking, the more visibly deflated the hump becomes. The hump will become lower and lower and lower until it will be gone because the camel is extracting all of its nutrients and energy it needs from the hump. If you give the animal, the camel, adequate water and food, the hump will uh, plump up. It will inflate like literally in a matter of days. How long can a camel go without water before its hump starts to slump? How long can this happen for? It's an amazing thing. A camel, we humans, for example, can last only three to five days without any water at all. During winters in the Sahara Desert, camels have been known to survive six or seven months without drinking. Now remember, they're not hibernating like the beer in the den, hibernating for winter, where the whole mechanism of the body changes. These are camels that are functioning. They're alert, they're awake, they're trekking in the desert for six, seven months without food, without water. That's the miracle of the camel's hump. Next time you see a camel with a hump, please appreciate, appreciate the unique characteristics that Hashem created for every animal, every mammal and every fish and every reptile and every bird. Exactly what it needs in order to be able to fulfill its mission and purpose on earth. Now, you know the thirsty vacationer who takes full advantage of the complimentary uh, breakfast buffet at the hotel, the backpacker who comes across some Shabbos meal, and he or she will make sure to take full advantage because you don't know when the next meal is going to come. 
Camels behave exactly the same way. They know exactly who they are. (laughs) We don't always know who we are, but most animals know who they are. And they make most of the liquid reward whenever they reach an oasis or a region where there's water. And therefore, they rehydrate faster than any other mammal in the world. They have the ability to gulp down 30 gallons of water in 13 minutes. 30 gallons of water, 113 liters of water in 13 minutes. If Don't try this at home. Because the consequences could be chalila hazardous. A wise camel knows that the next pit stop is going to be a long, dry walk away. So the camel takes advantage, 30 gallons of water in 13 minutes, and it will take more and more and more because it may want to stock up for weeks and sometimes for months. Therefore, it's only when we know this that we can really appreciate what Rivka did here. This was not just kindness. Rivka was not just a nice girl, a person of kindness and a good-natured disposition and character. This was, if I can say so, kindness on steroids. It was an extraordinary and astounding display of generosity and benevolence, because there were ten camels, and ten camels were given to drink, but not just given to drink. Now you know why the Torah will repeat three times that Rivka says, I will draw for your camels until they finished drinking. People read those words in Chumash, okay, till they finish drinking. No, no, that's key. Till they finish drinking is the key. She refilled the trough, till all the ten camels finished drinking to their full capacity. To the full capacity of a camel drinking. Till they filled up their bodies for water, preparing for their long journey back from Turkey, back from Haran, back to the land of Canaan. This means that Rivka kept on running from the trough to the well, going down into the well, filling her pitcher, coming back, running to the trough, Coming up, running to the trough, filling it, returning back to the well, refilling the pitcher, running back to the trough, refilling it until each one of the camels completed its full capacity of drinking, transcending the capacity of any other mammal living on the planet. And she did this all by herself. Now we know why the Torah says that Eliezer took ten camels with him. This is not a... It's just a detail to entertain you. There were ten camels on the road. This is this is it, 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 imp- this is vital. It's indispensable. We know why it says three times that she filled up the trough with enough water till the camels can complete drinking. It's clear why the Torah points out there was a distance between the well and the trough, and she's running from one to the other in order to fill the water in the trough. Now I ask you, how many times did Rivka run back and forth? <laughs> how many times did Rivka run back and forth? Considering that she had one pitcher, she had to irrigate 10 camels to their full capacity. She may have to run to the well and the trough back and forth. I would estimate between 20 and 60 times. I can't say this for sure because I don't know how large the pitcher was, etc. But I think that's a fair assumption. Until all the camels got their full share of water. So we can now appreciate, as this is happening, 
the Torah uses the word vaha'ish, mishta'ela. The man is astonished. He's silent. He's overwhelmed. He's mesmerized. He wasn't impressed. He wasn't intrigued. He didn't like what he saw. He was blown away. He was overwhelmed. Who observed such a level of kindness? Such an undiluted, absolute, generous form of giving. So the Torah says, when the camels finished drinking, he took a golden nose ring weighing half a shekel, he took two bracelets and he gave them to her. When the camels finished drinking, why does the Torah connect these two points? It's as though he's waiting for the last camel to finish drinking and then he's going to give her a bracelet. Like that's the introduction. Because that's the key. When the camels finished drinking, Eliezer gave her the jewelry. He understands he met not only a nice girl, he met a girl of a different order. He met a unique soul. He met something special. And it's not over. When he asks her if she has place in her home for him to stay, she responds she has room for him, and she has plenty of straw and food for all of the camels. Once again, she's not done with the camels and all the people. Now I ask you, why? Why did, Rebe- why did Rivka not ask Eliezer or the nine guys with him? Nine guys! Take the picture, fill it with water, I'm giving you my picture, and give your camels to drink. Why? Why wouldn't, he ask? Why wouldn't she ask him? So the Malbim suggests that when she came to him, and she asked, when he came to her, and he asked her if he could sip from her pitcher some water, she assumed that his arms or hands were wounded, and he could not use them. So he couldn't go down to the well, because he was by the well, so he knew there was a well there. Everybody was going to take the water. Why wouldn't you just go? It's like, it's like you have a cup of water, and there's a sink right here, or there's a bottle of water. Like, why would I come to you and ask you for the water? There's a lot of water here. So the Malbim says she just instinctively assumed that he's wounded, he's crippled, he's ill, something happened. He can't use his hands or arms, and therefore he can't go down and draw water by himself. So he's asking her if, Maybe it's hard for him to go down. Maybe something happened to his legs or his feet. But he ha- he doesn't have the capacity, the Malbim says, to get the water for himself. So she's as- he's asking her if he can drink from her water. This, the Malbim says, is why she assumed that he didn't help her take down the pitcher. Like, if I'm asking you for water on the pitcher, I would at least help you take down the pitcher and help you assist me. But he didn't do that. Why wouldn't he help her take down the pitcher from her shoulder to drink? So the Malbim says, obviously, if his hands or arms were wounded, or there was a disability, or there was some challenge, or something just happened to him, he got hurt, so he, he didn't have the capacity to do it. So she said to herself, if he can't even get water for himself, it will be impossible for him to draw water for ten camels who need to drink a lot. And they get pretty thirsty. That's why she says to him right after, I will also draw water for your camels until they finish drinking. Same thing, same idea. Maybe she assumed Eliezer and his escorts were too exhausted from a long voyage. Perhaps they looked weak. Perhaps they looked ill. Perhaps they looked hungry. Perhaps they looked drained. Perhaps she felt that the reason they're not offering it is... Because they can't. There's some difficulty, there's some inability, there's some challenge. And if it's a challenge for them, 
certainly their camels will not be able to be irrigated, and this, therefore, she offers her own services, which she does until the end. It's at this moment, it's at this exact moment, that Avraham's servant saw all he needed to see. He didn't have to see much more. We asked in the beginning, is this not an omen? And we said, no, it's a psychological test, it's a personality test, it's a character test. How can such a test, somebody being nice, decide that she's the soulmate of Yitzchak? But he saw here a heart so full of grace and love and affection and kindness and generosity and giving and open-handedness and most importantly, big-heartedness. He saw such a titanic heart. When was the last time Eliezer thought that I see such kindness? When is the last time that I see such uninhibited generosity? And he knew last time I saw it was by my master. I saw it by Avram Avinu. In the previous portion, Avram not only invites three guests to his home, but Vayorots, he's running to them. Rivka is running from the well to the trough, from the trough to the well. That word Vayorots happened before. His master, 100 years old, 99 years old, right after circumcision, three days later, is running towards these guests, and then he runs to the ox, and he hastens, again, the same words. Avram Avinu uses, he tells Sarah, Mari, let's do this swiftly, with swiftness, the same words, running and swiftness. This was kindness of a different caliber. Not just kindness, but kindness of a completely different nature. There are many people who are kind. There are many people who do kindness. But they're often very calculated. It's almost like with a checklist. How much do I do in order to get my share in Olam Haba? How much do I do in order to go in in the resume as a balas chesed? How much do I do so I could be called a person who does chesed and does midas tevis? For how long do I do it? Under which circumstances do I do it? To what point do I do it? How do I know I'm not being used and manipulated and taken advantage from? How do I know somebody is not exploiting my soft, kind heart because they are selfish and narcissistic? If Rivka would have consulted somebody before she did this, that person may have told her, you have an issue with boundaries, Rivka. You need to create boundaries. You are being used by manipulative people. Do not allow yourself to be used like this. And if this is how you are at three years old, what are you going to look like when you're 19 years old, for heaven's sake? You're a nice, beautiful girl, but you lack self-esteem. And I want you to come for a year. And I'm going to help you build up your self-esteem. You need to learn how to say, no, no, no. If not, people will use you all the time. Well, for one, I thank God that Rivka did not consult anybody because none of us would have been here today if Rivka would have consulted the person. You see, Rivka had a very good self-esteem. She had no issues with self-esteem. Rivka knew exactly who she was. She knew her abilities. Rivka was no pushover. In our mind, when you see such behavior, you're like, okay, everybody could just use her. Rivka was the exact opposite. She was an extremely wholesome person inside. But Rivka was the quintessential Yiddish mama, destined to become the mother of Klal Yisrael, the matriarch of the Jewish people for eternity. And what's the foundation of the Jewish people? What's the core foundation of the Jewish people? Pure, unadulterated, 
unlimited kindness. That's the core of Yiddishkeit. It's the core of the Jewish people. Rivka felt that her greatest gift in life is to help pers- another person without expectations, without calculations, without meditations. Remember in Vayera, Hashem says, why did I choose Avram Avinu? So he says, Ki yedativ, why did I choose Avram? Because I knew he will direct his children and his household to keep the way of Hashem to do tzedakah and mishpat. That's why I chose Avram. Because he will teach his children and his home to, to do charity and justice. If this is why Avram was chosen, so all the portions are now connected. God says, you know, ki yadativ. Yadativ means I know him, but Rashi says it means I love him. Why do I love Avram? Because he teaches his children, lasois tzedakah, or mishpat. Charity and justice. If this is why Avram was so cherished and chosen and loved, we can understand why when Eliezer saw this quality in Rivka, he knew this is the suitable match. For Avram Avinu's ear. This is the suitable spouse, soulmate for Yitzchak Avinu. Such a type of person whose entire essence is love will be the right one. Now some people may call Rivka gullible, naive, innocent, and therefore exploited. But now when you read the stories with intellectual honesty, you ask one question. Does Rivka come across as a naive woman? As a gullible woman? What happens a little later? She has two children, Yaakov and Esav. Yitzchak loves Esav. Yitzchak wants to give the great blessings of the covenant to whom? To Esav. And what does Rivka do at that moment? Rivka at that moment is extremely proactive, extremely aggressive to some degree. Certainly the proactive is the right word. And by hook and by crook, she goes out of her way and does quite extreme things, dressing up Yaakov and Esav's clothes, just to make sure that Yaakov, not Esav, gets the blessings. To put it in single, simple English, she was as savvy as they come. <laughs> you couldn't dupe her, you couldn't deceive her, you couldn't manipulate her. So that's why associating this story with naivete is misreading the story. It's intellectually dishonest. It's not getting the point. On the contrary. For her, this was called a life of refinement, nobility, grace, holiness. One soul sharing with another soul without one million calculations if it's worth it and how it impacts me. You see, when you're really wholesome, you don't need to make these calculations. Are there users in the world? Yes. Present company excluded, of course. There are users in the world, but it's their problem, not hers. She won't allow her dignity and her sense of love be tarnished by the fact there are some people in the world who will use you. When I'm wounded inside, when I actually don't know who I am, then I always have to make a million calculations because I'm so wounded. I may be traumatized. So before I give you a cup of water, it's like, is she using me? Go, go. I'm figuring and I'm thinking. And by that time, you can already, <laughs> you're already back in Eretz Yisrael. But Rivka was a very wholesome person. 
She was extremely confident. She was not wounded inside. That's why when she has to be extremely proactive and make sure Esav doesn't get the blessings, she doesn't become this push. She's not a pushover, as you would say. I mean, it's probably the wrong term to use, but she's not somebody you can exploit or manipulate. But Rivka is such a wholesome person. And for her, the ability just to give some to somebody, to show love, to show kindness, to embrace, to give water physically or spiritually or emotionally or psychologically, that's what life is about. If that's what life is about, she doesn't have to calculate. Are they really wounded? Let me get a certificate from the doctor and see if they're really harmed. Why don't they get down? This guy is such a lazy low life. I've heard what my brother says about men. I guess there's a point over there. Like, who are these people and what are they doing? But Rivka is so wholesome at her core. She's so pure at her core. She she celebrates it. It's like Amachaya. It, it's wonderful. How do you know if you're doing something out of insecurity or not? And here I should make a qualification. There are people who always say yes because they, they need approval, they need validation, or because they have tremendous fear to say no, or because they're people's pleasers, or because they have been made to feel so guilty if they say the word no. And therefore, they always say yes, even even if it's harmful, even if it compromises boundaries that should be maintained, even if it may damage their own relationship with their spouse or their children or their family. But don't confuse the two at all. And how do you know if it's this or how do you know if it's that? Rifka did not come home after this, go the next day to her therapist and say, you know, I'm such a loser. <laughs> I'm such a loser. Rivka didn't feel afterwards drained, exploited. You know, sometimes you do something and afterwards you come home and you feel like a shmata. It says in Svarim of Musar, sometimes you c- there's ambivalence if what I'm doing is right or not. You're not always sure. But you will always see how you feel afterwards. How you feel afterwards. When you did something that's positive, that's productive, that's holy, there's a certain inner wholesomeness. It's very subtle, but you know it was the right thing. And if not, there's an opposite feeling. Feeling. They used to say by Hasidim that every act in the world includes two types of verbal expressions. An oi and an ah. The question is the order. That's always the question. When I'm about to do a sin on a various, something that's not good for me, whether it's pursuing a bad habit or an addiction or saying a lie or doing something immoral, or whatever it is, there's always ah. There's something, there's something juicy in it for me. There's something exciting. That's why I'm following this addiction, whether it's binging or anything else. Ah, ah, ah. But an hour later, it's, oi, 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 why was I so stupid? The opposite. Sometimes I have to do something right and proper. So sometimes there's an oi, like, I'm not in the mood, I'm lazy, it's hard. But later, there's going to be an ah. There's an inner, an inner sense of wholesomeness. When a person is doing things in a way that they have no boundaries. There's no sense of self. I'm only saying yes, not because I'm saying yes, because I'm frightened to say no, that I'm not really saying yes. That's not called kindness. I'm just running away from my own demons. I can't even be here for you because all I'm trying to do is justify myself and validate myself. And I'm going to come home feeling like a rag, feeling depleted. With Rifkit, it was the exact opposite. She came home 
fulfilled. In fact, this is what gave her her husband. This is why she became the matriarch of the Jewish people. For Rivka, this was not something abusive and manipulative. It was the greatest thing in the world. Why should I calculate something that gives me life and gives other people life? I could be here for somebody. I can help somebody in need. I could give love. I can bring light and love into the world. This is what I was created for. This is my raison d'etre. This is my greatest and deepest and profoundest pleasure. A relative of the person once shared with me a story that happened, Pesach, 1945. The Skulene Rebbe of blessed memory, the old Skulene Rebbe, the one who passed away in 1982. His name was Rebeliezer Zisha Portugal, Portugal. And he was a Hasidic master who came from a small town in northeastern Romania called Skulen, or Skuleni. Towards the end of the Second World War, March of 1945, he and other Holocaust survivors found themselves in a town that was governed by the communist government, by the Russian government, called Chernovitz <coughs> in Bukovina, because the Russian, uh, the Russian army liberated Bukovina in April 1944, and then completed the expulsion of the Nazis from most of Eastern Europe by January 45, and that's when the Russians entered Budapest, Hungary. Pesach that year, the Skulene Rebbe, Rebbe Portugal, found himself in this Russian-governed town, Chernovitz. Pesach began that year, the 29th of March, and <clears throat> some charitable organizations developed, and they provided some basic foodstuff to the displaced persons as the war was coming to an end. But the Skolene Rebbe was dying. He was yearning to obtain wheat that he could, of course, grind into flour and bake with all the qualifications and the stringencies and the hidurim of Matzah Shmura. Now, the economic situation was dire, but he managed to obtain a limited amount of wheat and bake a limited amount of matzahs. So he let out a notice that any Jew who wants, for Pesach, he can give one matzah. And any rabbi or rav or rebbe who's going to do a public seder, a larger seder, he'll give them three matzahs. He calculated that would be somewhat enough. Uh, individual matzah to an individual and three matzahs for a larger seder by being run by, you know, a shul or a rav or a rebbe or a yeshiva, whatever. One week before Pesach, Reb Moshe Hager comes to visit the Skolene Rebbe. Reb Moshe Hager was the son of the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe, whose name was Reb Baruch Hager. So Reb Moshe, the son of Reb Baruch, the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe, comes to the Skolene Rebbe. Skolene Rebbe says, ah, your father, I'm sure, the Seret Vizhnitzer Rebbe will lead a public seder. He says, yeah. So he gives him three matzahs. Reb Moshe is waiting. He says, how can I help you? He says, my father, the Vizhnitzer Rebbe asked, ah, the Kenst Gebbe noch drei matzahs. <laughs> if he can get six matzahs. So the Skolene Rebbe says, listen, I would love to give you, Father, 160 matzahs. But you know the situation. I have a very limited amount of matzahs. If I give to your father, somebody else won't get. It's three matzahs. Reb Moshe Hager just stood there. 
and said, I understand. Oh, but the Tata, the Sered, Vizhid, Serebot, Kibetan, Fanach, Dreimatzis. He says again, my father, the Vizhid asked for another three months. Kalen Rebbe again apologizes profusely, but talking about a scratch CD, this fellow would not let go. He just repeated the mantra, like a mantra. My father, the Sered, Vizhid, Serebot asked for another three months, and the Kalen Rebbe reluctantly caved in and he gave him another three matzahs. He was reluctant, but he felt he can't refuse the request of the Sered Vision Tzerebbe. And life moved on. It's Erev Pesach, a few hours before the Seder. There's a knock on the door. The Skolener opens the door. Who's there? Reb Moshe Hager, the son of the Sered Vision Tzerebbe. He says, oh my God, Nach matzahs? He says, how can I help you? Reb Moshe Hager says, you have any matzahs left? <laughs> He really took from him. You have any matzahs left? The Skalene Rebbe says, no. Why? He says, do you have any matzahs left for you? So he said, I had three matzahs left for me. But this morning, somebody came and begged for matzahs. And somebody else came. And I couldn't say no to them. Why am I better than them? So I gave away my last matzahs. So Rebbe Moshe Hager takes out three matzahs. He says, my father assumed that you're going to give away your last matzahs. So he took three extra matzahs to be able to give you some matzahs. Here are your three matzahs for Pesach. And it's... You know, what, what, do, you, what do you call this? There's a life, this is called a, a life of Grace. A life of kindness. I remember a few years ago, I was, um, I think I was at a bris or somewhere, and I happened to be sitting near a secretary of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Label Groner. I think it was at a bris. So we were still schmoozing at the meal. So he told me that once, it was, uh, it was Erev Pesach, and he got a call. Somebody told him that there's a, an apartment, he lives in an apartment building in Brooklyn, and there's a neighbor there, they have a neighbor. And usually, Erev Pesach, you could smell, you know, what's going on in everybody's house, and, uh, with, with the tzibalach and the schmaltz, and, uh, and everything that people are, you, you could smell, it's a kitchen is, is lebedek and freilich. And uh, this neighbor, he's not smelling anything. So he walked into the apartment just to take a look, and he knows they're poor, and he sees, Mamish, that there's nothing there. It's empty. So he, and he, he himself didn't have anything. There was like one of these Section Aids apartment buildings. So he called, I guess he was a friend of Rabbi Groner. So he told it to him. So Rabbi Groner says, I went into the Rebbe and I said, somebody called. And what I'm planning to do is I'll just call a few younger light that have a couple of dollars and I'll ask them to bring over and we'll, uh, we'll deliver it. So he tells me, he says, before I, before I finish speaking even, the Rebbe was learning or something. It was right before Pesach. He opened his drawer and he didn't even look. He was reading something. He just took out with his hand cash. It was like hundreds, hundreds. And he threw it on the table. He says, By the time you finish with your meetings and calling people, just deliver immediately the money and, uh, and, uh, and let them have Pesach. So he told me he took it. It was quite a lot of money. And uh, the Rebbe didn't look what it was. He just started, and he gave, he called in a bacha from yeshiva, and he gave him an address with an envelope, and he said, just run and deliver it fast, or take a taxi and deliver it fast. 
and uh, he delivered it. And like two hours later, the other guy called him, was ready before him. He says, oh, now I smell, uh, now I smell things in the house. All of this illustrates the same idea. And that is, there's two types of kindness in the world. There's a kindness that is still beautiful. It's very cal- cal- calculated. And it's always, you know, quit per co. I did something for her. Now she has to do something for me. I did something yesterday. You do something tomorrow. Which is okay. It's better than the other way. But what, well, the, what Eliezer saw at this moment was that which would become the core, the core of the Jewish people. And the core of the Jewish people would be that inner recognition and conviction that the greatest gift in life is the ability to give love, the ability to share, the ability to uplift hearts, to ignite souls, to kindle sparks, the ability to give people from yourself, from your wisdom, from your money, from your food, from your water, from your resources, from your talent, from your wisdom, from your emotion, from yourself. That ability just to be able to give and not give with expectations and not give with fears and not give with concerns was really what Eliezer had to know in order to realize that Rivka is the person. And it's interesting, what's the first thing he does? Right afterwards, he gives her the nose ring and it says, what was its weight? Its weight was, as Rashi says, the machtes hashekel. What's the connection? And then he gives her two bracelets, connected the two luchos, the two tablets. What's the connection? <laughs> what is this? He's giving jewelry to the Kala. Here we immediately see the connection. What's the machtes hashekel? The machtes hashekel was a donation that the Jews gave every year the Beis HaMikdash for the Karbonas. But it was interesting. If you wanted to give more than a machtes hashekel, you weren't allowed to. If you wanted to give a whole shekel, it wasn't accepted. You had to give a half a shekel. Even if you were wealthy, a machtes hashekel. And it's fascinating because in the Beis HaMikdash we were always encouraged to give whole things, not half things. Not fragmented. You want to bring an offering? It has to be tamim, wholesome. Here it has to be half. You want to give a whole dollar? No. Only 50%. Why? Why would that be the case? The answer of course is the same reason why Eliezer gave Rivka right away the Machtes HaShekel. Because really the Torah is telling us you're not giving half. You're giving a whole shekel. But how can you give a whole shekel? Only with somebody else. Because you and I are one. When I join with another Jew, we give together a machtas shekel. I gave one shekel, and the other person gave one shekel. Because how do I define the I? If I define my I only in terms of me, myself, and I, then I only gave a half. But when we understand that my I is so interconnected with other eyes. So if I give a whole shekel, I actually didn't give a whole shekel. I'm actually, I, I gave myself a whole shekel. But essentially, it's only half. Why is it only half? Because I'm incomplete. When we come together and we give a whole shekel, I give half, you give half, you gave a whole. So the Torah is not asking you to give a half. The Torah is giving you, asking you to give a whole. But how do you give a whole? You give a whole when you realize who you are. I am half. When I realize I am half, I can give a whole one because I connect with the other Jew. He or she gives half, I give half, and then I give one. But when I think I'm whole and therefore I'm giving a whole shekel, actually I'm only half. 
Why am I half? Because half of me is missing. So Eliezer gets the, gives this to Rivka as the first gift. This would be the first Jewish marriage. Because Avram and Sarah married still before they were officially Jewish. But Yitzhak and Rivka would be the first Jewish marriage. What would be the nature of the first Jewish marriage? The nature of the first Jewish marriage, the first gift would be a zecher for the machtas hashekel. What makes a marriage thrive? What makes a marriage thrive is, if every day I'm thinking, oh, so my wife did the laundry, okay, so I owe her something. Oh, my husband did this, so I owe him something. It's quid per quo. So you, you did three checklists, I did other checklists. If that's what type of marriage exists, we'll become like, everything is calculated and premeditated. Do you deserve it this time? No, he doesn't deserve it, she doesn't deserve it. It's an impoverished relationship. What Eliezer took, what Eliezer felt so powerfully about Rivka is, he saw a type of person she was. This is going to be a type of couple that'll be able to operate on a level of machtes hashekel. The level of machtes hashekel means, if I consider myself complete in and of myself, I'm actually not me, I'm a broken person. Because I'm only half. And the more walls I make around myself, the more broken I am. Because I'm actually detaching myself from my wholeness. But when I can open my heart... And when I can share and I can operate on a level of consciousness of just pure, absolute, unadulterated kindness and love and generosity, when I know that I am half and together we create something whole, something extraordinary, that's where humanity thrives. That's where marriages thrive. That's where people thrive. That's how a nation thrives. That's how a home thrives. I once read that they had the special Olympics for children with special needs. They have special Olympics. And there was a child who was autistic. And they had like a marathon. They were running. And he uh, started to run. And he tripped on his own feet. And he fell and he hurt his head. And the other boys or girls who were running saw this. So they turned around and they walked back. And one of the girls who was also autistic took this boy and kissed him on his head, and they all walked together to the end line. And uh, apparently they received some standing ovation. Somebody sent me the stories. The story has to be authenticated. Sometimes people develop these stories. But the point is a very profound one. In life, we often think, you know, if I, if, if you, it's like a zero-sum game. For me to win, you lose, and for you to win, I lose. But that's only in a more limited way of living. In a deeper way of living, it's the other way around. For me to win, you have to win. And for you to win, I also have to win. And when people can graduate from the primitive level of I win or you win, it's one of the two. <laughs> Either you're first or I'm first. Then there's no machtes hashekel, then there's no marriage. They're living in a different place of consciousness. For marriage to be a real marriage, there has to be that ability of openness, where I could redefine myself as an ambassador of love, as an ambassador of light, as an ambassador of generosity, as an ambassador of hope. As always, we have to make qualifications. Sometimes a person is in a difficult situation where somebody is using them, or abusing them, or exploiting them, or manipulating them. And you need to have very proper and healthy boundaries. I do want to make that qualification. All of us know that it exists and you have to get real guidance and help how to be able to deal with somebody who's not ready to take that journey with you. But Eliezer wasn't worried about Yitzchak. 
Now when he saw it in Rivka, he knew that Yitzchak is not taking advantage of this woman. On the contrary, he went over and he gave her the Bekel of Gulgolos, the Machsus HaShekel, and the two Luchos, knowing that this type of person will be able to become the matriarch that will build the Jewish foundation for eternity. Have a wonderful week. He came the same day, right? The same day. Hayoim Bossi, Hayoim Atsasi, Hayoim Bossi. Well, if you didn't drink, well, you're saying they took water probably before. Well, if you don't drink for a... Right. You're saying if there was Kvitsas Aderech, why was anybody thirsty? Maybe Kvitsas Aderech helps in terms of the time, but not in terms of the biological needs. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know how it works exactly. Number one. Number two, could be Eliezer wasn't thirsty. He wanted a, he wanted to see. He asked her. Could be he wasn't thirsty. We know why he didn't go down to the well. Because he wanted to test Rivka. I'm talking from Rivka's perspective. Could be he wasn't thirsty at all. But the camels, I don't know. But she said, I want all the camels to finish drinking. You're saying maybe the camels weren't that thirsty. That's possible. But you understand the point. She didn't know about the Kvitsas HaDarech. She didn't know about all the Cheshbainas. She just saw a stranger asking her for water. What would be her response? Go, go take water. She doesn't know that he's trying to test her because he's looking for a Shidduch for, for Yitzchak. One question on this that always bothered me. How did the ten men stand there and watch a, a little girl? The whole class. So I'm sitting and li- thinking about it. it. What was an issue? And sometimes you see and, 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 and in this world, you see the women pushing the issue. strollers and carrying right. the stuff from the car from Costco, and the men are walking behind. <laughs> no, so I, I, I have feel have like it's happening. I have, oh. I have to know that. Oh, and I talk about it. Stop it. Let the men do something. No, I wish I know Rabbi Jackson speaks about this. A lot of men are men. Some are not. Yes. Okay, but we need to. But here in this case, your husband is a very—he's a huge mensch, but but and I'm sure right. they have to be educated. Educate them. What is this thing that the women have to do everything? Ten men. So oh. I don't I was care about her about it the whole time. And, and all that—that that was beautiful. But what, what, what about them? Where's their role? They didn't feel stupid. I mean, what is going on here? Let me get help and let me give her a hand. This doesn't make sense. That's all right. It always bothered me. My guess would be that they weren't there. They were probably lying down on the side. That's my guess. But that would also be what would do. No, they didn't even see it. I don't think Eliezer told them what he's doing. I don't think they were all part mm-hmm. of the plot. I thought they were they, standing there watching this. They went on a very long journey. I doubt they, it. They Maybe they were extremely tired, just no, like I, he was. I, I they probably they, went I to understand. sleep. Right. That's we're my guess. Tired. They may well, pitch the tent, but they went to sleep. Men go to sleep yeah, fast. Now, that would be my guess. That would be my guess. I don't think nine men were watching her sleep. But it's still happening. You have to speak to the men more. Right. There's also, by the way, there's another beautiful vart from the base Halevi. Hagarn Reb Yosef Dov Halevi Soloveitchik. This is the father of Reb Chaim Soloveitchik, Reb Chaim Briske. He was the Rav of Slutsk, the Rav of Brisk, before that Rosh Hashiva in Valozhin. So he has a very interesting pshat in the story. It's quoted, I think, in Mayana Shaltaira. You see, he says, when Eliezer comes to Rivka and asks her, I want to sip water from your pitcher. So basically, Rivka takes her pitcher and gives it to Eliezer to drink. 
So he's drinking directly from Rifka's pail of water. Now, any intelligent girl wouldn't bring home a pail of water that a stranger drank directly from. Who knows what diseases the stranger might be carrying? Who knows uh, what germs there are, even though they didn't know about germs at the time. But, you know, it's, uh, it was an uncomfortable thing. So what would the girl do? She would pour out the remainder of the water and then refill the pitcher, refill the bucket with, a fre- with fresh water, and that she would bring home to her family. But if the stranger was to see this, he would be embarrassed, you know, that his water is, is not unworthy and she has to pour it out. So to avoid the potential embarrassment, an intelligent and kind young woman would instead offer the camels a drink, thereby after the man finishes drinking, she'll get rid of the rest of the water by pouring it into the trough without overtly throwing it away. So the girl who would do this would certainly pass Eliezer's tests of character and intelligence because there's a sensitivity here. There's a wisdom. Instead of just pouring it out, she says, you know what? I want to give water also to your camels. She takes the rest of the water. She pours it into the trough. And then the camels drink that water and she could just go and refill her pitcher with new fresh water. And she takes that home to the family. But what happens is Rivka surpasses all of his expectations. This itself would have been a very... Uh, balabatish, uh, wholesome, nice and sensitive thing to do. What happens is after the camels drink from the trough, she offers to draw more and more and more fresh water for them. This demonstrated she wasn't just disguising um, the disposal of potentially harmful water. She wasn't just saving him from embarrassment. She was genuinely helpful and kind. And in fact, initially, she offers him that she's going to draw water for the camels. So it's not just a way of covering up the fact that she wants to pour out the water that he drank. She doesn't want to take it home. But rather, she really wants to help. She really wants to help this fellow. This is what the Beis HaLevi adds. The Beis HaLevi adds. So that's the idea, yeah. Well, look, you have the opposite. You know, in Yiddish, we have an expression, somebody called Ashvere Mensch. You know what Ashvere Mensch is? Just a difficult person. You know, everything is difficult. Everything is a fight. Everything is an issue. Rivka is the exact opposite on the other extreme. And that's the idea. It's just, it's a geschmack to help somebody. If you have an opportunity to help somebody, you do it. You do it with your whole heart. You do it with your whole soul. You do it with every fiber of your, your being. I can help somebody. I can, I can be there for somebody physically, emotionally, spiritually. I want to do it. The Baal Shem Tev once said, Aneshama kumtarop of the Welt. A soul comes down to the world, lives 70, 80 years to do one favor to another Jew, whether physically, a physical favor, material favor, and especially, especially spiritually. But, 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 but the idea of boundaries is still important because the, the point is, that's the point I was making in the class. This can't come from self-hate. If it's coming from self-hate because I'm insecure or self-loathing or self-denigration, it's just going to haunt me. I'm going to be frustrated. I'm going to be resentful. I'm going to be exhausted. I'm going to be depleted. And that's the difference. When you're doing it out of wholesomeness, then you feel positive. Even if you're tired, you went the extra mile, but there's a positive feeling. There, 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 There is a wholesome feeling. And when you're doing it from wholesomeness, you don't violate boundaries that you don't have to violate. And you don't do things that will ultimately be detrimental for you or your loved ones. You're in the store and somebody uh, says, could you give me a lift? 
but your daughter has an appointment by the doctor and it's an important, important appointment, right? You don't value, <laughs> there's an halacha, there's an order, there's a hierarchy. You're responsible to take care of your children, you're responsible to take care of yourself, you're responsible to take care of your spouse, brothers, sisters, parents. There's an order in Hilchas, in Hilchas Kibbedavim, in Hilchas Taka, how we help people, right? There's a system that the Torah discusses. There's, a, there's family, there's relatives, there's community, there's your village, there's your town, and so on and so forth. So it's extremely important to understand this. Sometimes people are martyrs. They're there to save the whole world, but they're not there for their own children because they're, they're, they're looking to run away from something. Rivka is not that person. It's the exact opposite. Also, it's not done by coercion. You don't feel forced. It's not like, I can't say no. It's done with a choice, and therefore it's done with enthusiasm. It's done, it's done with passion. That's what I think. It was emotional. It was a charged moment. It was a charged moment. You're welcome. Thank you for coming. It was a charged moment. Malchusa da Arakein, Malchusa da Rakia. I'm good. I'm just. I just want to just hear something about how it was with President oh. Trump. It was. Uh, I watched you. I listened to you. I tried to see everything. I wanted to be a fly on the wall, but I couldn't be. But yeah, it was a special moment. It was a kiddush shem shemayim. No, before and in the middle, yeah. And then it was a short little thing. How many people were there? Four hundred. I don't know the number, but a few million. Yes, yes, yes. You know, yesterday, the vice president, Mike Pence, announced that America is uh, reversing the old... uh, They used to say that establishing uh, Jewish communities in the territories is a defiance of international law. The vice president reversed it. Mamash yesterday. Incredible. Yeah, it's not I anymore against the law. Your, your, your yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's unbelievable. Yeah. What, what it's possible. It's yeah, unbelievable. I mean, I'm not sure, but maybe. I mean, is it true that who, who made them sad that you, you should say the Russian? Well, does Machloikas Aposkim, if you say with Hashem's name or not, or Reb Shmuel Vosner, the Shevet Halevi, and the Sha'ari Metzion and Ba'alach, Reb Shlomo Zalman Brain, Reb David Yosef, and other Poskim Poskim, you should say with Hashem's name. So there's an argument between Poskim. Some say without Hashem's name. Some say no bracha at all, and some say with Hashem's name. And I thought it was a pro... I've, so I followed that. I think it's the majority of the Paiskim. And especially as the president of the United States, like the leader of the free world, I thought it's an extra... Uh, I thought Rabbi Reisman was there too. Was it a consultation with Rabbi Reisman, Rabbi Moshe, Rabbi Cohen? This is what I heard. doesn't matter. I don't care. I'm with you. I consulted some Paiskim before, yeah. I wanted to make sure it's proper, it's appropriate, I consulted some Paiskin before to make sure, yeah. I'm saying there's, there's an argument. Some say with Hashem Malcha, some say not, so. But I think the majority says, yeah. I remember when the Queen of England came to the capital. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The question is because a president-elect is a democratic election, it's four years, or at most eight years, so it's not really a melech, number one. Number two, the clothes of a king. Number three, um... Yeah. 
But, but, but others say that because he has the ability, the authority to commute a federal death sentence and he can declare war. Right. Press that red button, I guess. Yes. So therefore, many Paiskim say that it's appropriate to say with Hashem's name. So that's what I'm Amen. Amen. We should hear Psuris Tavis. Amen. So when are we going to hear you speak about it? That's, that was a private thing, not a public thing. It's on video. You, you can see the whole thing. And, and, and people were there in person. The full video went up now. You could see the whole video. It wasn't supposed to be, no. Yeah, that's why it's all different. I was very proud. Uh, that's my rabbi. If you want to see the full thing, you could see it. So it'll give you a picture, yeah. The yeshiva.net. You could see. Somebody sent me the whole thing, so I asked them to post it. spoke about Trump, but I have to say today she was unbelievable. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for coming. And it's good because he validated for all those Jews who don't know what they're doing. That they're. That was the point. I know. That's how it is. Trust me, I got a lot of criticism. <laughs> I got a lot of backlash. Going to meet him, introducing him, praising him, blessing him. Oh, no, no big secrets from the White House. Some people were very upset. There's a reason why the Turakata was outside uh, protesting. <laughs> two measly people, never those two guys who had... There were even people who told me, they said, you know, there's liberal Jews who listen to you. They learn Torah from you. And now you're going to lose them. Again. You're going you're gonna to cut them off. Because so why they, do you do that? Because who they what do you, why, why, would you, uh, why would you want to uh, force them to, to sever cords with you? Because they get. Does it mean anything you say it could happen? That's not true. But, 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 but I said, I said, I don't understand. Even if all the accusations were correct, for thousands of years, Jews went to leaders to try to have positive influence. Esther didn't go to Achashverosh. She didn't know who Achashverosh was. He's the guy who made genocide, but she went to him. And Moshe didn't go to Parai. And Eliel didn't go to Achav. That's even the worst of the worst they went to. Why? Because there's the office of the king. There's the office of presidency, whether you like it or not. Achashverosh is given a tzaddik, a tippish, a shikr, a murderer. That's that's even that's even if you believe the worst of the worst. I, I wrote to somebody, but I said, especially you have a person who deserves a few thank yous. Yeah, canceling an Iran deal doesn't get a thank you. And, and an embassy in Urba, yeah, Urbashkin embassy, Golan Heights. Now that he said the settlements are not yesterday, Mike Pence. I said, I said, I said, I said, I said. So I told them, I said, let's say, let's say there's so many flaws and setbacks. I don't, I don't worship anybody. We don't worship people. We know his flaws. But he doesn't deserve a thank you for doing such good things for the Jewish people, for Israel. Come on. I told him the first time in a war between Israel and Gaza that the U.S. doesn't say both sides to show restraint. Every war, both sides should show restraint. First time it wasn't the same. The EU also. The EU did not either. Same thing, because of America. Anyway, but that's how it is. Listen, Jews are very, very um, opinionated for sure, but they're very. Um, 
One guy wrote to me, this creates anti-Semitism and it shows everybody that we're self-centered, we're narcissistic, we only think about ourselves. One Jew said to me, well, you should come out fighting against him because he doesn't treat black people right. But you don't care about black people, you only care about white people. They're help, he's helping, he's helping the black. I'm saying people have opinions. What should I do? Well, and to actually went in 65 to actually protest with all those blacks and all those... Abraham Joshua Heschel. <laughs> this class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.